So I'm walking along just behind London's South Bank. Up to my right is, uh, well, the huge glass edifice that is the Shard. And I'm on my way to interview two people who, well, they're engaged in an activity that is more normally associated with a more bucolic way of life. Uh, they're beekeepers. They're right in the heart of town and they run their operation from an old sugar factory in the heart of Bermondsey. So, I'm here to speak to Sarah Wyndham Lewis and Dale Gibson of Bermondsey Street Bees for the Fine Food Podcast. I think it's worth just reminding us where we are because I, I grew up out in the countryside uh, my family live out in the countryside down in Kent and they actually keep bees um, but we're bang in the middle of London you know it's a definitely an urban environment I can see uh, you know 1960s council flats just out the window I can see the shard from where the where the hives are this is not a sort of a bucolic rolling <laughs> Kentish countryside if you yeah, like this is very very urban mm. um Bermondsey Street has been the causeway between the old London Bridge and Bermondsey Abbey since the uh, uh, since 1082. So it's been a busy urban environment since then. You don't see a whole lot of obvious food for the bees, but um, trees and shrubs, as well as municipal plantings, weeds on railway lines, are really important for our bees. An analysis of our honey showed that over 90% of the uh, pollen income was from trees and shrubs. Um, flowers, um, really a very small component of that. So the popular misconception is that wildflowers are the thing for bees. That's just not correct in terms of the science. But what we intend to do is to educate people to plant more trees, more pollinator-friendly trees and shrubs. And if that means herbs in window boxes uh, in London, that makes sense too. Mm. So it's for us, it's... It, it's creating the, a little bit better patch of ground here. We're not going to try and save the world from Bermondsey Street. But if we can just make things a little bit better, greener, softer, more productive, environmentally friendlier here, then we're doing the job we're supposed to do for our bees. So, you know, it's a sustainability a mission that we have, but one that is really in harmony with our honey and with uh, the health and welfare of our bees. Well, it really struck me. I mean, Sarah and I had a, a conversation on the phone last week when we were setting, setting today up, mm. and that element of it, that, that outside of the keeping of the bees, uh, you know, the, the production of the honey, the selling of the honey to some great restaurants and dealing with your customers, is there's this advocacy role. Clearly, you see there's almost a responsibility within what you do to spread, I guess, the ethics of beekeeping, yeah. particularly in an urban environment. What's been forgotten is that honey is a luxury food. It's also a very local product. It's a product of its terroir. The bees fly within three miles, so they're going to reflect entirely that area, its plants, its minerals in its soil, just, just like wine, just like there's so many other products. Olive oil is another really good equation with honey. Um, and so, you know, we don't have a given right to just dump bees into the environment and hope that they'll get on with it. If you, if you, have, an, uh, you, know, if you have an equivalent, if you, if you take the word bees out of our business and substitute it with cows, say, you don't go and get a herd of cows, dump them in the middle of nowhere and say, oh, off you go, guys, you look after yourselves. What we're trying to do is to minimise our 
footprint all the time. We, we have a lot of hives, uh, but for each set of hives we have, we have its own local sustainability agenda. Now, working with some of our clients like Lambeth Palace, they've got the most wonderful gardens. We don't have to worry about those bees being well fed. I mean, they're, they're, they're fat and happy and making gorgeous honey right smack in the middle of London, but in this wonderful little island that is Lambeth Palace Gardens. In other places, we work with people like Barclay Homes and stuff. We do a lot of consultancy work. We, we take very long, hard looks at the environment using all sorts of government data and stuff, which is available. You've just got to know how to put it together. And quite often we say to them, you know what, you really shouldn't put bees in this place. It's, it's not the right place. Well, there's so there's an element of environmental consultancy there's a, there's as well. There's a big element mm, of that. Mm. It's a lot of what we do. And, and a lot of what we do, unfortunately, involves being the Grinch that stole Christmas and just saying, guys, this is not the appropriate place to keep bees unless you can put substantial forage in the ground for them before the bees come. Yeah, we like to just um, sit down in front of senior uh, officers of the company and explain that the old paradigm was that you shoved a hive on your roof you went down to the pub and told each other what fine chaps you were and what a great job you'd done. Well, given that London is the most densely populated city in Europe and quite possibly the world for honeybees, that is not a sustainable approach to beekeeping. If anything, that is a march against sustainability. What you're not doing is providing the food for the bees prior to their arrival on your roof. We will only work with commercial clients if they subscribe to that agenda and plant for the bees adequately before the introduction of new bees. And if they can't plant, they don't have the land, they can fund a local greening charity who have the land, they have the expertise, and they have the um, know-how with pollinator-friendly plantings to do the job for them. So we end up with the CSR budgets of major corporates feeding into uh, charitable institutions like Bankside Open Spaces Trust, like Potter's Fields Trust. Um, we don't control who they want to employ to do these things, but we can point them in the right direction and explain why that green offset is a real positive for the local beekeeping environment in London. I often see our role as being to connect the dots because the, the word honeybee enchants people and, and, and they don't really actually know what a honeybee is quite often. Um, and as I was say, saying to you earlier, I mean, we've got 250 species of bee in this country alone, 25,000 worldwide, but only one of those bees from the 250 in this country is a honeybee. Um, so there's an awful lot of other hungry pollinators out there. And again, if we're coming in and stomping all over the environment with honeybees dumping hives left, right and centre, not only have you got a problem of overcrowding in the honeybee population, which can spread disease and all sorts of other issues, uh, but also we're, we're actually wiping the slate clean of other pollinators like bumblebees and other solitary bees who, who need to earn a living as well. Mm. Um, so th those issues, I think, you know, the longer we've gone on, the more acutely aware we've become of trying to be less, not more. You know, just, just trying to, 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 to educate people, to send them out as little brand ambassadors for bees with real knowledge in their heads rather than what I call, you know, sort of daily mail thinking and scare headlines, or the bees are dying. And my first question is, which bees are we talking about? Because it sure isn't honeybees in London. No, right. <laughs> it strikes me that the word, that the word beekeeper is perhaps, at first glance, a little limited because it makes it sound like, all your focus is the bees and that's it. And actually, you, you both just just in the beginning of this conversation talked widely about the environment, about how you influence the planting, how you incorporate on a kind of, I guess, societal level for the benefit. And it's a sort of symbiotic relationship mm. that if one is improved, so is the other. Yeah. So it's a, 
it's it's actually a term that includes quite a broad spectrum of, of, of elements, really. Well, well, the word beekeeping starts with bee, and so our view of how we behave to make fantastic honey from healthy, thriving bees is to create an environment for them to do that. Um, as a beekeeper, you know, for example, all I care about in terms of my uh, management of the hives um, is the brood box. If the bees make more bees and those bees are healthy and the queen's laying uh, at a good rate and she's weighing, is laying worker bees, they're going to make honey. So I don't need to look at the honey boxes. Um, I know that new beekeepers are always fascinated to look at the um, bees crawling all over the honeycomb, which is beautiful, gorgeous, and uh, the end product is delicious as well as very visually attractive. But for the beekeeper, the prime focus is the bee, because that's going to drive everything else. So uh, in terms of our stewardship and husbandry of um, bees, that's our primary concern. We're working in the realm of enlightened self-interest here. Sure. Um, but we are you know, very, very clear that we're, we're trying to raise the attention level of the plight of bees in a way that is not being generally done because everybody's just stuck on this, oh, the bees are dying and, oh, one in three mouthfuls and uh, if the bees die, humans will go within four years. There's a lot of nonsense and claptrap. The bees have survived 80 million years. They've, they've survived all sorts of things. They're very likely... To, to, to wait to out till we've gone, gone yeah. you know. So look, we're, it's March. The weather is very changeable. The sun has come out of nowhere. Should we quickly run yeah. upstairs and yeah. say hello to the yeah. bees? I'm not so going to leave you guys to that. Very, very fair <laughs> enough. That's, That's fine. the only way to go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's do that. Let's do that. So we're up on the um, we're up on the roof. It's very breezy up here, but I can see the shard. I mean, it's an extraordinary location. We're right in the heart of Bermondsey. And uh, we're going to have a look at a hive. So uh, we're just going to go into uh, one of our hives very briefly here. Um, and we're going to put the microphone down into the hive just on the side, well away from where the brood is, just where the food stores are, so that we can actually get a sense of the buzz coming off the hive. And Dale is moving very slowly and assuredly. So these are very calm bees. And we do breed them to be calm and that means the queen bees are selected and, and locally bred. There's one on my arm but I just get the impression that they're, they're just checking me out. Yeah there's no reason to be. No. Um, so I'm just taking a frame of food out now that will give you a chance to put your microphone in that okay. environment. See it's rigid with honey. Yeah wow. So um, plenty there. Gosh look at that. So we're going to give this a go. I'm just going to put the microphone in now and I'm just going to let the bees do their own talking for a moment or two. have it. I don't want to outstay my welcome. The microphone has come out complete with uh, half a dozen bees there. Just, again, just very relaxed. Well, they're just checking out. It's not yeah, a form of local flora. That yeah, can, uh, exactly. There's nothing the on there. Honey stores. Sad to say, chaps, there's nothing on there for you. Okay, we'll just put the hive back together again. So we've just okay. been in there for a minute. Um, sun's out and the temperature's above 10 degrees, so we're in perfectly responsible conditions some gentle um, 
beekeeping with the aid of a microphone. So slide that back in. We just want to make sure that they have uh, as little disruption mm. to their daily lives as possible. And remember, we are getting <laughs> so we step. We're just going to just. Yeah. I was just about to comment that, in a way, though we are commercial beekeepers and we are members of the Bee Farmers Association, uh, Dale handles his hives as if they were hobby beekeepers. You know, with that that degree of care and attention. So we don't have masses and masses and masses of hives. We have less rather than more, and we treat them very, very you know carefully because if you're a big commercial beekeeper you don't have time to pay attention to the niceties you tend to you know bang hives around bang bees around because you know there's a question of acceptable losses and stuff and you know that that's one way of doing things but we prefer to do it in a very slow and steady way that you remarked on and and to treat each hive as, a, as, a, as an individual entity so exactly well we yeah, took you, we took our opportunity you, you and uh, we, we survived yeah. despite you know you've got a little, a little beekeeper's uh, memento. Excitement in the air. <laughs> yeah, it's always worth um, just, uh, you know, as I say, children, if you're watching at home, it's always worth having a full protective clothing when you open a beehive. We looked at, yeah. downstairs at your, well, your, your domain, your, your, your room. Yeah, your we have a honey room. processing room at the back with two um, rather large, um, shiny uh, extractors, which take eight frames at a time. Uh, they're a wonderful piece of Italian engineering. And um, that's simply how we take the honey out of the containers that the bees put it in, which is the honeycomb. We open up the comb we, that, so that it's available to be extracted under a centrifugal force. I'm just going to add the fact that we don't take a knife to cut off all the, t the top layer of the honeycomb because, again, you know, we, we're trying to be sustainable. If you take great chunks of wax off, you then have to do something with that wax. We, we open it by piercing the capsules, which then leaves lots of wax for the bees to use again. I on, see. On the comb. So you're they, literally just taking yeah, the very... They, they, we're not even taking anything off. We're just piercing the capsules. Oh, right. So then the bees will have the comb back and they will clear it out after it's been spun How out. do you approach... How do you... Sorry to get into such detail, mm. but how do you... When you're piercing each... So we're talking about each little cell. <laughs> yeah. uh, when you say pierce, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of picturing you with a needle. Yeah, we have a roller. Um, so it's yeah. a spiky roller. It looks like a medieval war uh, uh, implement. <laughs> okay. But no, it's just simply for opening up the comb. We also sometimes use on very young, very uh, comb, which has got light capping, we'll use a hot air gun um, just to melt the comb back. So it doesn't do anything to the honey, but it just the, 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 the wax just fades away and, mm. and pulls back. And you're not stripping off huge chunks. You're not chunks stripping off huge chunks of wax. Okay. And, yeah, and, and I mean, that, it's, just, it, you know, it's just simple things. Every beekeeper comes to their, their way of doing things. Our, our way of doing things throughout the process is absolutely to minimise the impact on the honey and waste at every single level. Um, so I mean, we're, we're trying to achieve a zero waste situation and uh, we're trying to give the bees as much wax back because obviously that spares them energy rebuilding it when they when they set on their cycle the, the following year. So then um, back to Dale in his spinning room where no one else is allowed. <laughs> well, we allowed spectators in from time to time, and we do take we do take the um, uh, the extractors on the road. You know, it's nothing quite like having a group of twelve people who are participating in spinning out the honey. Um, and then uh, going down through the honey gate into a filter and then taking a jar of um, filtered honey home, uh, having been part of that process, is really engaging for people. And we do that for our clients uh, outside. And, um, you know, it's a great way of 
bringing people into the whole story of honey and the simplicity of the production processes done by artisanal providers out of the comb where the bees have stored it, through the extractor, through a single filter into the jar. That is, you know, we take it out of the container where they store it, we put it in the container where we store it with very little in between. So that's the difference between artisanal honey, which has only been minimally um, uh, extracted, um, filtered to leave all the pollens, all the enzymes, all the things apart from bits of dead bee and wax inside the honey. And so you have a whole food. You have a, uh, an, un, um, uh, 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 an un an unbroken honey, yeah. whereas industrial processing is going to heat the honey, destroy the enzymes. It's going to microfilter, extract the pollens. It's going to blend. It's going to take it from around the world. It's going to be uh, food miles all the way from another continent. And then it's going to be put on a supermarket shelf to look like every other honey up there on the supermarket shelf. All our honeys look different. They all taste different. In different years, honeys from the same hives tastes different. It's like wine. It really is that straightforward. And once people get to that understanding, they'll understand the difference between a one-pound squeezy of honey on little shelf and a jar of artisanal honey that comes from a locality and is unintermediated, unfooled around with, and is just a pure luxury food. And it's something that comes, you know, I'm lucky enough in my position here to talk to producers of all sorts of different, you know, artisanal, fine foodstuffs. And that's exactly the message, that really what your role is, you're almost a conduit for something natural to express itself. Yeah. You know, you're, you're bringing something natural to the market with as little intervention, as little botherment it's, as, as possible. Know, it's alive. It is. I mean, that, that honey's absolutely swirling full of exciting things. It's, it's uh, a lucky coincidence that this perfect whole food that bees create for themselves... Uh, is nutritionally available to human beings. Um, and somewhere down the line, we've decided that it's our right to take it. Uh, and that, that's not, not appropriate. I mean, we, we have to share it with the bees. One of the very important things about being a sustainable beekeeper is that we don't take honey that the bees need to see themselves through winter. We'd be shooting ourselves in the foot. We'd be weakening the immune systems of our stock. Um, and, and we wouldn't be true to our ethics. So, you know, some years you can't take a harvest. It's, it's like, again, like wine or olive oil. Sometimes you just have to say this is a really poor year. And, and we're just going to take it on the chin. Um, and, and other years, uh, like rather strangely last year, even though with the drought, we were all awash with honey. Um, most beekeepers had a fantastic harvest in lots of parts of, of the UK. I don't feel that it's the best honey that any of us have ever produced in terms of an expression, but that was a factor of those incredibly hot days and the really the only plants that survived it were those which had very nice, deep roots right. or people's garden flowers, which saved the day for a lot of bees where they were thrown back on, onto you know, literally things that people had planted in their gardens, things like herbs and stuff, which um, are not their first preference, those sorts of cultivated flowers, but they, I think, did save the day. But um, yeah, we, we had to review our tasting notes really thoroughly because those families of honey that we have, they generally have a theme running through them that you could pretty much blind taste and say, yeah, this, this honey is, is that one from there. Uh, it was all thrown up th th this, this last year and we were tasting stuff as it came through the honey gate and as the honey came into us and just thinking, bloody hell, <laughs> that's not, not what we're expecting at all. It's great honey. It's alive with possibilities for you know, chefs to use in different ways. All of those themes that we're trying to work with are there, but 
But what, what, is, what are these flavours about? They're very, very concentrated, very focused, almost impossible to delineate the individual florals in, in honey. So, you know, we, we, we work with the weather. We work with what happens to us, and we just, we just have to, to ride that roller coaster as it comes. So part of your role, then, is, is, is finding a way to communicate that to your final customer. And I'm, I, my understanding is quite a large proportion of who you sell to are chefs and kitchens who yeah. sort of have that language at their fingertips. So it's, yes. it's something that you know they understand that seasonality they understand the terroir and in a sense that almost adds adds value to your product it, it does except that they a lot of chefs though they inherently understand those factors they haven't understood that honey is part of that and um, it's one of the things that drives Dale completely bonkers because we're, you know, we're master chef professional just sort of hits about dinner time when we're slumped on the sofa and go, okay, let's watch it. And there they are producing these fabulous dishes with ev every ingredient carefully delineated, you know, pork from here and this from there and these wonderful vegetables. And then they will pick up a thing of squeezy honey and put it in their dish. And you just think, why on earth would you do that unless you just simply hadn't understood the nature of honey and the fact that it is an artisan product and, and it's not a commodity? It's not, you know, that their honey often comes from the people who supply them with salt and sugar. You know, that it, it's not meant to be sold by those people. It should be sold by people who are specialist producers. And, and you know, we, we have a lot of education of chefs to do still. Those that get it really get it, um, but others you know, have, have yet to understand how they can elevate their dishes so much by just using better honey. Uh, interestingly, another sector which is really waking up to this is bartenders, because they do use a lot of honey. Things like bees knees are classic cocktails, but also in experimental ways. And we work with quite a lot of bars and bartenders and sort of funky young people who are developing all these crazy cocktails. They're mad scientists. Um, honey's one of their, their favorite things, and, and that generation does get the difference. Uh, but there's a generation before who, are, again, are still, still just squeezing honey from a bottle. But that is the trend, generally, in, I think, in, in food and drink, and certainly in, the, in a smaller scale, you know, producer's world is that people are waking up and to, to the possibilities and suddenly if you, you know, when you dip your finger into the world of honey, the world of cheese, the, 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 the spectrum of flavour that you have mm. at your fingertips, you know, and I can imagine as a barman you've only got maybe two or three in ingredients in a cocktail and if one of them is, is honey and you can drastically change the flavour yeah. of a cocktail yeah. and the profile of it by using a different honey from, from another... That's really exciting. I mean, it becomes almost overwhelming, the possibility, you know, <laughs> of every element in the kitchen yeah. is, well, we could have this, this, this or this. I, I mean, how do you make a decision? But I guess that's also part of your job is to help guide them. Abs absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, they, they come to us and say, you know, um, this is the dish. One, one of the most amazing things that happened to us was Hakkasan came to us and said, we're thinking of doing a honey. Uh, I don't know how, the, how did they explain it to us, Dale? Because you, yeah, you met a fusion them, um, yeah. to celebrate the Chinese New Year, yeah. um, to take the uh, oriental um, trade of Hakkasan and uh, translated into a, a Western concept that would be a great way of signaling the Chinese New Year and on yeah. a plate. But they, they produced, you know, they, they took it away and, you know, we didn't hear anything more about it. We just thought, great, love Hakkasan, how fabulous to be, you know, in going into their kitchen. Next thing we knew was up on Instagram popped this incredible dish that they'd made with our honey and and you know them saying thanks to Bermsey Street Bees for supplying us with this fabulous honey and 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 a picture and stuff and and um 
so we thought, we'd better go straight down there. So a, an excuse to go and have supper down there with some friends. And we had this, you know, it, sat there and ate this amazing pudding made with our honey in about three different expressions. It was in a mousse, it was in a, a, a twill, it was in something else. And, and um, that when we, we said to the, the guy, you know, rather proudly, this is our honey that's in there, you know, a bit sort of you know, like gauche teenagers. <laughs> and he said, oh, it's, it's everybody's favourite, favourite, um, you know, dessert. And we think, oh, it's so lovely to actually see it going through. You know, we, we sit here hoping, hoping that people are going to understand the nature of it and will explore it take, when they take it into their kitchens. And when somebody actually demonstrably does that and photographs it and puts it on social media and thanks us, or you think, that's a nice warm feeling mm. as a producer. Well, and that's an option for you, given where, where you, you're positioned. I mean, you are in, in, in London, which is, mm. you know, arguably one yeah. of the great culinary centres on the planet. There's some pretty extraordinary produce flowing in and mm. out. And actually, produce that's produced in London... Is, is is kind of not that common, actually. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a handful of cheesemakers in London, not many. Most of it's mm. flowing in from the West Country and the Midlands. You know, when it comes to honey, there's you, there's a couple of other people, but yeah. I guess you're positioning yourselves in that in that realm, in that fine dining as a, as a, as a unique and exciting yeah. product for them yeah, to absolutely. use. Absolutely, and, and we very much are sort of cleaving just to English honeys. I mean, we don't want to import Manuka honey uh, especially given the um, high level of uh, food forgery in the high-end honeys. Uh, the uh, New Zealand Herald just a couple of years ago reported that there's um, eight times more manuka sold in the world than is actually made, uh, according to the New Zealand statistics. So wh why would we want to get involved in uh, yeah. a, a, a slanging match about whether this pot of honey is real or not when we have things which are absolutely authentic genuine from our own apiaries we don't have to guess where it came from so we don't also want to lose sight you know we love the complexity of honey that it's so versatile in the kitchen but also a simple honeycomb uh, one of our biggest markets is selling um, pristine honeycombs to high-end hospitality events uh, restaurants you know it really is something which is uh, exciting and unique for people to have on their table uh, for a breakfast carving um, of a honey and a honeycomb stand, which we also make and supply. So we, we just have a sort of um, a, a nice pathway to tread from the simplest form of honey, honey in the comb, and we know that isn't forged because it would be more expensive to make it like <laughs> yeah, that, that than it would yeah. be to take it off the hive properly uh, as a surplus. So, you know, what we're trying to do is take the, the pathway all the way from that simple expression of honey. After all, honeycomb was mankind's original luxury food. It was there when the first human being walked on two legs. It was the most concentrated form of sugars and high energy. It was um, able to be stored. And uh, it also is versatile in those days because it could make alcohol. So uh, you, you were in a pretty good position if you knew how to get your hands on a bit of honey as a caveman. Mm. That would make you pretty popular down the pub it's on a currency. Friday night. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So it's an original luxury food. And do you know what? Honeycomb hasn't changed ever since that first human being bit into a comb of honey. That's how the bees still make it. That's still available for you to eat today, the original luxury food of mankind. Sarah and Dale of 
Bermondsey Street Bees. And thanks, of course, to the bees themselves, who do all the hard work, really. Um, it was fantastic, and what a treat to be up on the roof uh, in that bit of London uh, and also trying some amazing honey. Next time on the Fine Food Podcast, keep your ears peeled, because we're going vegan. The Fine Food Podcast is produced by Salomon and Michael Lane of Fine Food Digest. It's edited and presented by me, Sam Wilkin. If you want to know more about the Guild of Fine Food, go to gff.co.uk and check out Salomon Sam on Twitter and Instagram. Instagram.